Hello and welcome to the Engineering Futures podcast. I'm your host, Paul Barker, and I'll be helping you explore the world of manufacturing by introducing you to successful people from across the sector. We'll touch on everything from personal experiences and professional challenges to contemporary issues affecting the sector, careers advice, and practical steps for employers who are looking to attract the top engineering talent. Join us as we get to know the people who have made a difference within the sector. So, welcome to Catherine Evans, um, the second guest on the Engineering Futures podcast. How are you, Catherine? Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. So, we will get straight into it. Um, so, if you just introduce yourself, kind of who you are and, and, and what you do. Okay, I'm a mining geologist. Um, I've been working as a mining geologist for coming up to 15 years. Um, I also lead a network called Builders Brass, which is about um, pushing the equity focus for mining, quarrying, um, construction, rail. It's all sorts of different heavy industries where it's very gender biased in terms of workforce and it's moving very, very slowly towards equality. So we just want to be a bit of a catalyst and shake it up. Okay, cool. So we'll we'll pick up on that a little bit a little bit later on. Um, I think we you know we've both got shared experiences of working within mining, um, and it's a it's an interesting sector, I think, to, to say the least. But um, okay, so in terms of you pursuing a career as a geologist um, how did that come about and was there anybody or anything that inspired you to, to, to pursue that career? Yeah I was a teacher yeah Mrs Anna in Gowden School um, she was a geography teacher and then she also taught geology A level and she was she's just really fun and really I asked her one day like why do you miss why do you do this instead of being a lecturer because you're just so knowledgeable knowledgeable about geology and this is clearly your passion over geography as geology and she said I just love watching baby geologists grow up she thought it was it was really lovely and she had quite a few a few of us went on to be geologists and still are geologists so she did a really good job at laying down that foundation and getting us I get the I guess the, like the the enthusiasm and that first bite into geology and carrying it on. It's all down to Mrs. T. Oh, that's amazing. So, in terms of like the other people that also that she also inspired, were they were they in your class as well? Uh, one was. Um, he's been he's been in Australia and in Hong Kong. He was working on the Hong Kong Tunnel. Um, he then he went to Australia. He was there for about ten years. He's come back now, and he he works for Atkins Realis. He's still a he's still a geologist or a project manager, something like that. Um, and then there's another one who is he has his own business, geology business. Um, I'm sure there must there must be more because there's a lot of geologists from this side of the world, from South Wales, because of the the mining background and the the extractive industry that was in South Wales who just seemed to you get little focuses of the Cornwall's full of geologists the north is full of geologists mm. um okay and then so in terms of 
was this at um was this high school or was this um a levels a levels or comp yeah we had A-levels, um yeah. yeah yeah and then so you did then you go to university after yeah, yeah and studied geology yeah yeah cool um and then okay so then what was your first job that you got into once you'd completed your studies I was working offshore in um, oil and gas exploration. That was the, the first thing. Did that for a year. Um, it was definitely an experience. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, that's quite a that's quite a brutal first job, isn't it? Kind of being being offshore <laughs> straight from straight from university. What was that like? Oh, I was just happy to have a job because it was two thousand and eight. People weren't taking on grads, um, but. Yeah, my PPE was rubbish. I was absolutely freezing. It was like December. So we had to, it was like I had to go up to um, Aberdeen day before my birthday and it was snowing when we got there. Then we had to fly to Tunisia to do our training, then come back to Aberdeen to do the crash test training with a helicopter. Um I went home for like three days and then had to get myself to the Netherlands to the helipad to fly out to the North Sea. So just all of this moving around and temperatures up and down. By the time we actually got out there, I was exhausted, freezing and a bit like a startled deer, I think, because like, now I'm in the, the sea. <laughs> I don't know anybody here. Please, does somebody want to be my mum? And yeah, there were very few mums there. <laughs> but I was really one guy did did sort of turn into my rig dad and I'm still in contact with him now um he's I think he's like a offshore installation manager I think that's what you call them the OIM yeah so he's actually managing a rig now really? um, but yeah still keep in contact with him wow so that sounds like a pretty it's not a normal first job, is it? It's not a normal kind of first day at work. Um, how long did it take you to kind of acclimatise to that? And did you enjoy it? You know, did you think, what the bloody hell have I done here? Or did you, you know, did you think this is great? I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> no, I just, coming home, it was, um, it was weird. Came home, my mum was like, you were so tired. You just seemed to sleep for a week. And it was absolutely exhausted from doing day shift. You do 12-hour shifts and you go from a week of days into a week of nights. So that day where you have to switch is you definitely don't get the full night's sleep and you have to alternate. And you also have like the weather to contend with because you can get fogged on or fogged off, which means like you can end up staying in a hotel before you go out or you end up staying on the rig an extra day, which really zaps your enthusiasm. Nobody's happy on those days. The food wasn't great either. Just, I don't think it, it's not that it wasn't great. It was just not what I was used to. So it was um, difficult to know what what you were getting each time. So when you're not, you know, you're not having the same nutrient levels and you're cold and everything seemed to be difficult, they were like, it's like, is the storm going to get in through these doors that you have to do? Okay, I couldn't open I'd be standing there. Can somebody open this door for me, please? Because I can't do it. <sighs> yeah, I did not like that. I was glad when I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so how long did you do that for? Just a year. Just a year, 12 months. Yeah, two on, two off. 
Oh, it sucked. Yeah, I really didn't like it. <laughs> and then what happened after that? What was I went to live. In, I went to live in the Netherlands. Um, I was learning Dutch quite quickly, and then I went to work in a in Krauthof, which is like um, a botanical gardens, because uh, the Dutch love plants. They know before they plants. Um, and that was really, really interesting because it was in an area, they had an Ice Age museum attached to it where children used to come from the local school. And I ended up um, working with the local council that worked with the Krautoff to create this bike route through the meadows to teach a local school children about the Ice Age and how the Ice Age affected that area. So that was that was really, really interesting. And I learned a lot very quickly in terms of language and about culture and then as well because I was going to this school for foreigners which is what it like directly goes into I was meeting a lot of different people there was a lot of people from Eastern Europe there and a lot of people from war-torn countries that were seeking asylum and I just learned so much about different types of heritage and like we'd have parties where everybody would it would be like potluck parties. Everybody bring their favorite dish from their home, and it was just really, really, it was really cool to be surrounded by people who would teach me things that I was like, this just blows my mind because I've never, never even thought of something like that or pictured somebody living in that kind of circumstance. So yeah, there was. Very different, but it's the same offshore because you've got such a mix of people mm. who work offshore. You get used to working with lots and lots of different people and just taking people how they come, never having that, never having an impression of somebody because of the country that they've come from. Mm. You know that everybody's very, very different. Yeah, interesting point that because I think when you look at, you know, what goes on in terms of especially if, you know, I'm from, a, I'm from a small town and sometimes there's a small town mentality because a lot of these people have never actually been out of the town and never really integrated with people who are different from different backgrounds and, and learned from them. Um, yeah, so that must have been a nice experience to have at kind of such a young age and probably made you think how different things are at home in comparison to being out and, you know, those experiences you were having. Yeah. It makes you think about home then, you see it in a different way. It's like you see it for like warts and all, but also the positive sides of it as well. I think that was that was something that I um I missed home then being away and all of the the uniqueness of tiny little village in South Wales. But then when I came home, like you just said, that thing about very small town mentality. I lived in a peninsula um Gower and yeah things change very slowly on a peninsula because it's pretty much an island with a road in road out mm. um yeah so then after Holland what happened that's when I started working in the coal mine when I came back okay so yep. coal mining so worth adding now that this is like kind of when we first started chatting on LinkedIn I was like, oh, wow, coal mining. Because I worked in coal mining for 12 years in total um, on the design side of things. Something that I feel really passionately about, I think it's, you know, I think it's really, it's, it, it's not a kind of uh, in vogue sector and people think, oh, you know, I should get rid of coal and stuff. But I think there's something really, in terms of the history 
in terms of like the kind of social value to it and the principles and everything that just something about coal mining just resonates with me as a, as a kind of working class person. Um, however, definitely a challenging environment for, for a woman to, to be working in, you know, I would say. So just tell me a little bit about your experience of kind of how that job came up and what it was like, what it was like working, working in that sector. Yeah, just um, I just applied for it because it was, was local to where I was from. It was in Clinith and I was in Gower. So it was like 45 minutes drive away from where I lived. It was a geology job. It was something that I knew a lot about because I'd grown up in an area that was had so much mining heritage. So you don't really get away from it in South Wales. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows what it's about. And you taught it from a very young age. So just felt like a natural fit. And because I'd already been working in an extractive, it kind of just seemed like a bit of a progression. <clears throat> and um, I applied for it. Um, I asked, are there a lot of other people who have applied when they said that I had an interview and they said, yes, it's mostly, they said it's mostly men. Um, you're the only woman who's applied for it. And they're all from Camborne School of Mines. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I've got absolutely no chance that school has the word mining in it. So <laughs> I learned absolutely everything about the Tories, <laughs> about what happened in the 80s, what happened at that particular mine, what's happened since, the uses of different types of coal, all the different types of coal that there are, because it's not just coal, there's just such an array. Um, I had questions ready to go and I went to the interview and, and they said, you know, you'll have to work underground for this. And that hadn't even come into my mind. <laughs> I was actually going to work underground. I was like, really? And they just looked at me like, are you an idiot? Yes, of course, you're going to have to work underground. This is coal mine. Um, and I was like, oh, OK, yeah, that's fine. And they said, are you sure? You, that's quite a big thing to go and work underground. Um, and I was like, well, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's like I've just been working offshore for a year um, and I've worked in a country with people I couldn't even speak the same language in. I'm sure I'll be okay working underground. So, yeah, it turns out that was fine. Um, it was just a bit like in the interview, we had the second interview, we got a trip underground and I was just like, that the front, get away, these two boys that were there as well. <laughs> I just wanted to be at the front asking all the questions. Um, I got called son quite a few times before they realised that I was a woman. And that was a bit of a shock because you all look the same when you come in. Sut. <laughs> just, and it's dark anyway. Um, and until somebody looks at you with a headlamp and has a really good look at you, you just assume everybody's the same. So... Yeah, it was I was absolutely fine. It was just boiling because I was wearing my underground my um coveralls from offshore, which were too cold offshore and way too hot underground because you don't realize how hot it is in a head in. It's like thirty degrees. It's just so hot down the head in. But then like walking up the drift, just howling with wind because it was um oh, like an exhausting kind of system there. So that was just like pulling past you when you walk out and you just covered in sweat oh my god it was so cold I just remember the temperature differences more than that and also again not being able to open doors because <laughs> you'd have like the suction pulling on one side oh yeah I had to that's when I started lifting weights because I can't carry on being this week 
if I went to carry on being a miner, these people are so strong and I can't even open the door. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting job. I only went I went underground once um, at a coal mine in Coventry, Door Mill, it, it was called uh, the you know last it? the last operating um, coal mine in England, I think. Um, for long wall mining um they actually made a documentary about it about it closing down and it was it was yeah it was heartbreaking to watch it but um yeah i think that like in terms of that job and the people that do that and you know what they go through in terms of a working day it's most people would never believe it you know to go underground and like say with the kind of claustrophobic it is the, the heat how dirty people are, you know, it's uh, it's an eye-opener, isn't it? Yeah, and then so quickly becomes absolutely normal. Mm. And then the thought of doing anything else, because when it, when it got to the point, it was 2010, and the arse had dropped out of the coal industry. The price of coal was so low. Uh, I think it was 2010 we started there, and it just dropped the, the, the entire time you were there. Um, the thought of being made redundant and not working in coal anymore it was just awful because I said how am I going to go and do a desk job after doing this so I asked if I could be moved um and that was 2012 Christmas 2012 January 2012 2013 I got moved to Canada to go and work on one of the the companies same company but in some of the open casts over there so moved to British Columbia in the middle of their winter back into the freezing cold mostly temperatures but my story is just <laughs> yeah then it was um minus 40 instead working outside and realizing what cold really is did you know the inside of your nose freezes at minus 26 does it now we do yeah yeah that's I've when never, never experienced that i must be i must be honest i think minus 26 is that's new ground for me yeah it's a different kind of cold <laughs> definitely <laughs> it's um not like our cold. I remember minus 10, I was taking samples in the cold one day and it was April and I had a t-shirt on because it was just, I don't think I'd acclimatized that well, but like just it's a really dry cold, not, not a damp cold. I used to give my husband really, really like long stretching electric shocks if I shuffled across our awful carpet and I could zap. Because it was just so dry. We had to have a, a humidifier on in the night, which would then mean we'd have frozen glass on the inside when we woke up. So it was such a, it was weird. Compared to here, you couldn't really go out for a walk. You'd end up going out for a walk in the winter and we'd always end up walking on a wolf track. And then it would be like getting dark at two in the afternoon and you walk along a wolf track. Like, this is just the pits. <laughs> I just wanted to go home. So we did that for a year and a half and I was so glad to come home at the end. Yeah, so so you didn't fully embrace life in Canada, then it's not something you could see yourself doing full time. No, I absolutely loved the job. I loved the, how difficult it was, and not because I was finding it difficult in terms of geology and coal and strata and anything like that, or the process. That just seemed to be, it came second nature, I think, because we had such little coal in Wales um compared to what they have over there because the size of the coal seams over there you could have like 13 foot coal seam compared to here where we had it was called the 
we had one that was called the 18 feet. It was not 18 feet of cold there, but at some point there would have been. But yeah, you'd have these enormous, massive amounts of coal um, and a lot of it would end up in the tip. So I would go out of my way to make sure that we didn't tip all of that coal away, that it was just trying my best to make it more and more efficient. It was more the mentality of people that I found quite difficult because you don't think of Canada as being particularly backwards in their their way of viewing people. You think very progressive North American country. You don't hear many negative things about Canadian people, but I found it very, very difficult. I was on $20,000 less than the men because I was a woman who was foreign, which is what they were told me, and I needed to prove myself. Even though I've been working in an underground coal mine for the last two years, which is longer than the men who I was working with had worked for Walter and in the open cast, then I still got paid that much less just because of my gender and where I was from. And some of the language that I heard people use, racism, the sexism, the xenophobia that I experienced there, um, oh, just it was um it was different to how how open people were and how accepting the people were of me working underground like the the colliers there would go out their way to make me feel like I was welcome to work underground with them they worried for me a lot but then complete opposite when I went to Canada and some of the blast like we had a blast team there that was all women there weren't any men on that blast team and they were women in the operational team that team was really good to work with um and you could see how their diversity meant that they saw things in different ways they had less blind spots i guess because they had that the view from like the men there they had the view from the women there it was it was open i mean it was very white where we were there weren't very many black people and people of colour there. And the ones who were there weren't treated very well. Um, Indigenous people who were there, I noticed that they didn't get treated very well either. So, yeah, it was it was completely different. I was glad to come home. So, just to kind of press a bit deep on that then, I suppose, based on the things, your experiences, have you ever had to advocate for yourself or for others to ensure that that people have been treated or you have been treated fairly in the workplace have you got you know any examples of that yeah I get myself in so much trouble (laughs) for doing that (laughs) because I'm just so chopsy I can't stand people being treated unfairly especially when it's like it's not especially but you see it I see it a lot to do with protected characteristics and I think why why it's just so weird so alien to have to be so judgmental and then you you really do notice things working in the mining sector about boys club Mm. and your face fits and yeah and by being that person who is chopsy and who is the one who will just, you know I'm going to say something. You do just know, I think everybody realises, oh, Catherine's coming, great. <sighs> There'll be something to talk about then. <laughs> because I do 
because I will question people and just don't just nod and I'll stand up for others and report things because I don't like the way that somebody else has been treated, whether they feel strong enough to go and report it or not. And I think that's something then that can really annoy the people who've been hurt and the people who have hurt them. And I think the people who have been hurt, the ones who don't want to make a fuss because they don't want it to come back on them, I can see how that could hurt them. So I make sure that I've got their their backing to go ahead and do it because you don't want to be the reason why they get into more trouble. But at the same time, by them not saying anything, it's allowing it to continue. And that could be somebody else who is in a far far worse place mentally, who's being treated the same way, who goes on to then do something to themselves that has, puts them out of action, puts them into a place that means they can't earn anymore. Just It just hurts everybody, hurts their whole family, just because somebody else didn't want to say something. And I think that's where I come from it on that side is just that hidden union rep inside me. Mm, yeah, and I think that some of that has been, I think, lost recently. I think within, uh, once upon a time, look, look at the unions and, and the strength that they had within within organisations, that's been eroded. Um, but I've kind of, I know we've discussed before, but I've had personal experience of where I was, well, someone attempted to bully me when I was an apprentice um, and people, just stood around and kind of let it happen. Um, and I stood up and, I, and, and I, I stood up for myself and, and I sorted out, but how the company resolved that was to move me, move me to a different factory. And it's amazing how much that happens and why, why people feel reluctant to speak up because sometimes you are perceived as the troublemaker by, by, by standing up and, and actually doing something about it, you know, and, and, and if, have, you, have you come across that yourself personally? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, people have called me a dangerous woman. Really? Which I think, now, I, I'll take that. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a troublemaker, out of control. All the sort of things that you think, how dare you? Who needs to control me? Do you need to be controlled by somebody? So who the hell do you think you are saying that about me? Yeah, people don't like it. Mm. People don't like that somebody who they view as being very young, I'm not, I'm just look younger than I am, who is short, I've been told that before as well, when I was in Canada, you're never going to be fully respected by your team, because I was doing a pitch, um, pitch shifter course, you'll never be fully respected because you're a woman, you're short and you're foreign. Like Because I'm five foot two, that's an issue for people as well. Um, and because I'm a woman, and I'm not, I'm not, foreigner in my own country now but we can see exactly how that works for other people that we work with yeah people people don't like a woman with a voice and a woman who won't be intimidated they keep on going and they just keep on picking at you and picking at you but the different thing is now with a tribe of nearly 1200 people behind you who keep on coming up with really really I guess positive messages for you to keep going then you don't feel scared anymore and you you realize you're doing the right thing 
And you're not just protecting yourself, you're protecting those people. And you're also trying to make change, the right change. And it takes people like this to actually make a change because all the nodding dogs, there's no change coming from them. They're just protecting themselves. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely self-preservation. Um, you know, and people ultimately, they're only interested in themselves, aren't they? Sadly. Um, okay, so kind of moving on to the, the next question then about what initiatives or changes do you think are necessary to encourage more women to be able to enter and thrive within the kind of within engineering, mining, construction, you know, what, what, what do you think needs to be done? Um, I think we need to go all the way back and it's going to take a, a massive cultural change and it's doable. And a lot of people try to like, they change these little things and hope that it changes culture. But really, it's, it's, we've got to go back to the building blocks and realise that our entire industry is built around one type of person who are the the main people who are still in the industry. Like, in population-wise, there is a lot of white men still in the industry. But there are things that need to be put in place and built in from the very beginning, um, not just bolt-ons, not just shared like you can have this space to share because somebody needs to pump for breastfeeding, but they also need to pray. So obviously you just share that space. How does that work? That doesn't work at all. I think having people in positions where they're there just to help, don't take on somebody who's going to be an engineer plus work in IND. You have somebody who's an engineer because they're amazing at engineering. They're also really really good at being an advocate for ind that shouldn't be a mixed job they're just fantastic engineer who is also very well rounded then you need to have somebody who's working in your sustainability and your social value and your ind and that needs to be a department by itself that those people shouldn't be expected to do like the techie kind of like it's all technical but it's like the core skills which other people will call the soft skills, but I don't see much soft about them. And then like your hard skills, which I would say that the technical side of it being your your engineering kind of job or your health and safety job or your finance job. And then you've got the other side of it. You don't have to be a HR person to be doing the people side. I think you just need to be an advocate for people. And I think that's something that people for, like they lose. It's not that they forget; they just lose it. They want to have their HR department full of HR people, and those HR people may not even be people advocates. They're just very, very good at what they do in HR. But HR isn't always there for the people; it's there to protect the company. So there are other people. I've always found that the people who are working in the I and D side of HR are the ones who are very people-focused, doing the right thing by the people, who can be a right pain in the arse for the rest of the HR team because they want to do one thing, the HR team want to do another and follow these policies. IND are trying to write other policies that are people-based. I just think everybody needs to be more people-based, less, less like technical output-focused. We need to look after the social value on the inside of the company and that is going to come through to the outside of the company. So what, in terms of like, so you had the teacher that inspired you, 
in terms of like grass grassroots level, do you do you think that the message is strong enough within education to, to advise particularly young young women about the opportunities to 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 take up jobs, you know, within these sectors? I don't remember when I was in school, I don't remember there ever being these are jobs for girls and these are jobs for boys. Um I remember somebody in my biology class said she wanted to be a beautician and I saw my biology teacher, who was a woman, her eyebrows nearly hit the ceiling because she didn't want that for her. Mm. That's what she wanted to do. That was her choice. She was definitely the only woman in that, only girl in that class who was going down that route that we see as a stereotype. That's what she wanted to do. So that that doesn't matter, but I would say that our school particularly, I don't remember it being like that. And if I think of like the geology side of it, there were a lot of people in like the the sciences and the maths in A level. They seemed to be very heavy with a, a mix. There wasn't it wasn't like engineering jobs are for the boys and the I can't even think what humanitarians. I guess a humanitarian kind of lessons would have been more for the the girls but I can see how that could be happening I just if I think of my own background I can't remember that and maybe that's how I've ended up my brother is a nurse he went to the same school as me I've ended up as a mining geologist there are there were girls in my class one has gone on to be um, petrochemical engineer Um, I've got girls in the class who are designers um one is doing fire safety and then boys in the class one's now a politician one is i think one is the other geologist one guy goes he was going away and he was helping with turtles conservation turtle conservation um and now he does like rope access cleaning the inside of towers and tunnels yeah, so I think it's just so mixed with the school that I came from. Mm. Okay, and then moving on to the kind of the PPE mission that you are on, can you just tell us a little bit about that? What what are you hoping to achieve, and, and what, why? You know, what has made you take on take on that kind of that mission? Um. PPE for me has just always been rubbish because I am small. I am the gender that doesn't fit in it. Um, I think it, because I'm not, I'm quite a like a narrow woman as well. I don't have a particularly feminine shape. That I guess I just feel like a bit of an anomaly. Um, but not really an anomaly. Everybody's different. I've just sort of. I think I've felt that because my PPE has never really fit. And the reason it's never really fit is because people buy one type and hope it fits. And it's just this case of one size fits all. And when I worked underground, I had my stuff actually made for me, which was great. And it fit me perfectly. Um, Then moving on to Canada, all you wore was a vest, which was way too big for me anyway, because it was made for boys. And the boots were enormous and I couldn't work out why. Um, And it wasn't until I started looking into this that I found out actually it's because women's feet and men's feet are different we don't have the same shape feet we don't have the same center of gravity women's weight is 
far more forward than men's, especially during pregnancy. Um, our pelvises are obviously different. That's why we have got the figures that we do. And then the Q value, which is the value that at which um, the angle at which our hips come out of our pelvis, is that a different one to men? So if we if we're in an unstable shoe, then we end up with um, higher risk of injury to knees. And that's something that's happening a lot because our boots, when women wear men's boots, they can't do them up on their ankle because their ankle is smaller. Then the boots just flop around. So your knees are at risk, your ankles are at risk. You've got blisters. Your brain is focusing on the pain instead of on your job. And because you're wearing that PPE, you know you're in an unsafe um, surroundings you're not actually paying attention to what's going on because all it is is brain on the pain. The same thing then when it comes to trousers, trousers that don't fit, you can't get into vehicles, you can't get out of vehicles, you can't get up and down off the floor, which is quite a big thing when you work in a physical job. Um, any sort of manual handling isn't going to happen. Coats then that are too long in the sleeves, in the body, or sit on your hips, so like the bomber style jackets that just end up, you get water pouring straight through your trousers from your hips. You're cold and wet. You're not thinking about what's going on. You're just cold and wet and miserable. Hard hats that fall off, hard hats that won't go on because perhaps you've got a wig or dreadlocks and you can't get them over your hair. There's just like, there's just so much. There's so much to think about um, that people who have always fit average size PPE have never had to think about and these people they're average size so there's quite a few of them and they are the ones who will say it's not a fashion show just wear the men's it just doesn't fit it's unsafe and they don't see that by having PPE that doesn't fit and having your brain on your PPE on your clothing on your boots it's taking it away from taking your taking your head away from the safety, your surroundings, the job that you're supposed to be doing. If you can't actually do the job because you can't do any manual handling, you can't get in and out of vehicles, you're less likely to be putting yourself forward to actually go and do it. Or you just look lazy, or if you're struggling to pick something up, people aren't going to ask you to come back and do it again. They'll be asking the people around you who can. And you'll notice that these people are moving along in their careers far faster than you and wondering why. There's one of the reasons why, because your PPE just holds you back, which then gives you imposter syndrome, makes you feel inadequate, and you don't know why, just because your PPE doesn't fit. You're just not safe. You could end up end up being injured because of the PPE that you've been given, and yet we're just told it's the last layer of defence. So get on with it. And... I don't think that is good enough. And I don't think that it shows that we care. We only care about one type of person. And it just feels like a very, very backwards mentality for a country that thinks it is so progressive. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with PPE as well because sometimes people perceive PPE as, well, you're only wearing it from time to time. And that's sometimes it's the case it might be you know someone might only have to wear it 
very infrequently, but I remember when I was working at um, at college, and we had a young a young girl who um, who had to go in the workshop, um, and she used to she actually got upset about having to put this PPE on because she was small and she was drowning in this. It was like a small man's overall that was like. Mm dangling like a foot below a kind of a hands and she had to roll it up and she had these work boots on and it was uh, yeah and then she just didn't want to engage she didn't want to go in the workshops because of the ppe um and to be fair the college sorted that for and they got some they got some uh, some women's ppe but um yeah it's if you're then having to go on and be employed as an apprentice within a company and you're wearing ppe every day and all day and it doesn't fit yet that's supposed to be kind of keeping yourself from an accident but as you say it can actually end up contributing towards your mind isn't on the job yeah yeah she's just thinking about and she's worried about everything that could happen the floppy boots so you're just thinking about the twisted ankles and then people who've got shoes on that don't fit are at a higher risk of twisting their ankle and this is supposed to be safety equipment that is there as the last form of defense but it is the first piece of safety equipment your body is going to come into contact with because you are inside it so why would we not be making that ppe fit i just think it's absolutely beyond and when was the last time that we heard about um, a fee for intervention being handed out by the HSE for PPE? Maybe it was about respiratory equipment that we know has to fit, that gets a face fit test. Mm. Why, why aren't we having body fit tests for this PPE? If, they, if it is actually supposed to be what it is meant for and not just an orange uniform, it should be fitting. And it's even in, it's even in L25, regulation 4.51 it says it has to fit and it has to have it has to take into consideration protected characteristics like like gender like heritage cultural differences like it just sticking somebody in any old thing because they need it and we're like done it's not okay so what are you hoping to achieve you know what 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 difference are you, do you want to make for 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 employers and for for women that are out there having to use PPE and struggling i want i want to see women safer if we if we look at it rather than just a, a wholly inclusive because it's not just women this affects it affects everybody who's not average size man so it's affecting men as well um for women, I want to see that women are safer, that they're being given PPE that is made for their body type. They can choose what they need based on what is the most comfortable thing for them because they can be handed a pair of boots that fit the procurement manager wonderfully, but perhaps your feet don't fit in them. You shouldn't be expected to wear something that's taken your thought process away from the job um, and down to your feet. I want to make sure that everybody is being given the right kit for the risk because I feel that right now not everybody who should be wearing PPE to a high-vis standard is. I think there is a difference that people, I think there's something that's being forgotten where 
because it's orange, that means it's okay. But actually, orange FR, the fire retardant garments, uh, like coveralls, mostly aren't compliant with EN ISO 20471, which is the high visibility standard. Um, we say in that we need these to be to that level, that standard of um, high visibility, but these FR garments aren't. But because they're orange, that's kind of forgotten about. That needs to be sorted out. I think there needs to be, I would like to see there being a certificate for PPE for people who work in health and safety inside companies, people who sell it, anybody who is a supplier selling it, anybody who is a manufacturer, the brand, the distributors, everybody along that chain should have some sort of certificate. And I think the end user needs to have had a form of test of their knowledge of what it's for and how it can protect them. Like you have when you go and do a CSCS card to go on a construction site and you have to know certain differences, certain things. Like I think it was something in the CDM test that I did, you have to know the angle that you should put a ladder at. That is the safest angle. I don't think it says much about PPE and the differences between the, the standards of PPE. So that's what I want to see changed. And I think we'll be in a better place then when everybody understands it. And it's not just, oh, but it's the last line of defense. Everything else should have been sorted out before that. Mm. Right. Okay. So tell me about Baldur's Brass. So what is Baldur's Brass? How did it come about? And what impact has it made for you and for others? Baldur's Brass? Uh, was set up 18 months ago. Um, it's just a LinkedIn network for, it was originally just for women to support women in their day-to-day workplace life, I guess. Um, it was so that we had a place where we could feel free to speak about things that affected us without being closed down by other people because other people wanted to speak about what they wanted to talk about. It was a place for us to talk about how we felt that um, our companies could do better or um, how we were doing in other companies and maybe something that was really working for us well, give the idea to somebody else. Uh, in like the stuff to do with, is to do with IND that there shouldn't be, what's the word? There shouldn't be any competition when it comes to inclusion. So I felt that that's something that we needed to be sharing more of. With our company, we thought our company was doing a fantastic job of something in a policy. We could we could share that knowledge without sharing the policy, share that knowledge with other women so that they could do better. But it came on from that so quickly. We had a support call where we just spoke to each other um, about certain things and realised that PPE was something that was a massive factor for most people. So we started the campaign, the PPE revolution campaign, um, wanting to know if there was anybody out there who wanted to send us PPE who, that we could try out and find the stuff that actually fit because a lot of PPE wasn't fitting us at all. And I found out very quickly that it wasn't that a lot of PPE wasn't available. There was loads available. It just wasn't getting to us because companies were using suppliers that wasn't that weren't stocking it. Um, 
from there then we had some more support calls and I think realized that there was more needed for these women and at the same time I was having a lot of coaches coming forward and say they wanted to help career coaches uh, I didn't realize at that time that career coaching was even a thing um, so that was that was a really really good start of something last January where we started the the um, career sessions and that sort of that's really rolled on to finding that we have a lot of similarities the women working in the in the construction industry have a lot of similarities where we feel there have been certain things forgotten about like we're so CPD focused that these core skills have been forgotten about and these are the leadership skills that so many women have and because women aren't making it into these leadership roles they're mostly there's definite gender focus there and we aren't being considered for these roles that's why we see there's a lot of men still going into these upper roles which means we have nobody to look up to there's no role models that was another thing that I wanted from Boulders Brass was to be able to have women see role models within the group so it's like inside the the, the, group, the group that is for closed closed group for women there's a lot going on there's always there's always a chat about something um I think there's this group of women in there now who I always you always see the same people always chatting always adding comments um speak to each other outside of the group as well and then we've got the allies group where we want to try to help anybody else from any other industry who wants to know more about how we are made to feel um or how we think that we could do with better allies so that one's um you don't see much in the way of engagement on that one because I think so many people are afraid to say the wrong thing that they end up saying nothing at all mm. and yeah it's just sad that I reckon all those people have got the right message perhaps they haven't got the right words to say the message but their message is positive um it's just a case of scared of using the wrong language so how would yep. is that an open group is that is that group are people able to to join that and, and to request to join that you know what's the process to, to be involved with, with that for the allies group that's an open group that anybody can join um and then the boulders brass group is um a case of yeah you go in and you ask to join and then one of the admins will let you in and then you're free to write on the board we don't have i don't have a process where it has to come through one of the admins to check first it's um it's pirate rules inside <laughs> respect <laughs> just respect each other um don't share don't screenshot don't share anything outside of the group because this it's a it's a place for us to support each other it's our community it's the place where we can we can use that as somewhere to grow and network and um look for new careers or speak to people who can help others with careers it's a place it's a place for networking there so if there's people listening to this if there's women listening to this now and, and thinking 
you know, wondering if this group is for them, not sure whether they'd be, you know, whether they want to, whether you would want them to join. What would you say to, to those people that are listening? If you identify as woman and you work in any field that comes into, um, well, not even into, what word am I looking for? If somebody in the company that you work for, in the industry that you work for, wears PPE, you're welcome to come to this group because you don't have to be a PPE wearer. We're not all about PPE. This is a place for supporting women. And there are so many different aspects of engineering, mining, environmental, um, rail, it's like offshore wind, energy, landfill, any of these things then it's open for you to come in, any form of design. We all share the same thing. We all have to live in a world that's governed by patriarchy. And I hope that the experiences that the women who are inside the group can share with everybody means we all learn something and we can all move on and we can all feel stronger to speak up for the right things. And you are no stranger to awards and nominations, um, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of might be embarrassing you a bit here, but um, tell us a little bit about that in terms of the recognition that you've you've received for the work that you're doing. I got a new one this morning. I saw, yeah. I saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what well, I started with the GE Awards back in the summer. I had, I was shortlisted for the Inclusion and Diversity Award. Um, and then I had two nominations for New Civil Engineer and Construction News Influent is it Influential Women? Yeah. Inspirational Women, that one is. Um, and one of those I won for Network of the Year for Boulders Brass, which is really good. Um, and a shock as well. And then this one this morning is for SHP, Health and Safety Online. Um, that's for one of the most influential people in 2023 for Bob's Brass and the work that we do around PPE, um, making making more inclusive PPE and um, making women safer. So yeah, so it's really it's really nice to be recognised for. I definitely don't do it for the awards, like everybody says, don't do it for the awards. But it's nice to know that it is actually making a difference and people genuinely know who we are and what we do. Yeah, you know, and you know, getting nominated or winning awards ultimately helps spread the message as well doesn't it so yeah definitely a good thing okay and then last question what advice would you give to your 21 year old self um wear bigger knickers <laughs> <You're sure. laughs> because it's cold <laughs> i think my advice to your 21 year old self would be don't get jobs in the North Sea or in Canada. Go over to Australia where it's like nice and hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I probably moaned about it being too hot. <laughs> right, well, super. Thank you for your time there. I think that's, uh, you know, from I've not known you long, but I think you're an inspirational person, absolutely. And I think you're on a, you're on a really, you know, you're doing a really good thing. So keep up the good work. Um, hope that people listening to this um, can kind of really 
really get behind what you're doing and and support you and jo join join your movement um so yeah so keep up the good work and, and thanks for your time today thank you paul